Welcome to The World Below, The War in the Heavens, a podcast exploring the adventure, the intrigue, and the magic of a land that lies beneath the celestial battle between gods and demons, a clash that has gone on since time immemorial. I'm your guide, your interlocutor, and your host, Michael Pryor. Welcome, everyone, to episode 12 of the World Below the War in the Heavens podcast. This is the second episode of season two, and this one is all about Queen Varfina I of Anaquist and the time of the youthful monarchs. A word before we get into today's episode, and this is prompted by a query from a listener, Alice Gardner of Brisbane, Australia. She's uncertain about the powers of Anaquistian monarchs and exactly what they could do and what they could get away with. Good point, Alice, and I've probably taken a bit for granted on this score, so here's a quick explainer. The monarchs of Anaquist thus far, and we've covered the reigns of five queens and kings since the dynasty was founded by Eucanton I in the year 70, they've all been absolute monarchs in the fullest sense of the term. They've ruled without question, their word being law. They are the highest authority in the land, their right to rule being granted by the gods in the heavens above, after all. Can they declare war without consulting anyone? Yes. Can they levy whatever taxes they want? Definitely. Can they execute anyone they want to? Absolutely. Although mostly they didn't do it themselves, they had people for that sort of thing. Some, though, took matters into their own hands and they were perfectly entitled to. That being said, the monarchs were usually better off if they had support, particularly of the noble and rich families backing them up, if you like. Oh, and the military too. Useful sorts to have on your side, military. Having the goodwill of the people at large was handy too, but not essential. All the monarchs, however, ever since Eucantha herself, have had advisory bodies of different sorts. At the time we're speaking of, these councils aren't formalised in any way and are formed along the wishes of the monarch, which, again, emphasises exactly who is in charge here. Usually they're chock full of nobles, relatives and friends. These advisory councils did more or less work according to the demands of the monarch on the throne at the time. And the members had more or less expertise in important areas, again depending on the whim of the monarch. Sometimes the members were known as ministers, sometimes advisers, and at other times just councillors. More often than not, the preeminent among them would be called the chief advisor or the prime councillor or, or something like that. So there was no consistency in form, size or duties of this advisory council for quite some time, not until the events in the 12th century started the process moving to what we'd see as more of a constitutional monarchy. More on that later, much later. Below the advisory council were usually a number of other committees or bodies in charge of particular areas of administration, like taxation, public works, water and sanitation, and external affairs. This is where most of the actual work went on, and these faceless people rarely feature in the history books but they were the ones who kept the realm ticking along in the sort of day-to-day matters that make a difference to the people living in the day-to-day matters. 
Not many stories are written about their adventures with city planning and sanitation and such, but perhaps there needs to be. That's a broad outline of the way the state of Anaquis worked for more than a thousand years, with so much depending on who was at the top of the heap. Thanks for the query, Alice. Now, onto this episode's monarch, Vafina, daughter of King Sain, sister of King Prescon, the late King Prescon. She's born in 236, takes the throne in 256, aged only 20, and she reigns until 279 when she dies aged 43, after 23 years on the throne. She has four surviving children, three of whom go on to rule. Varfina is the first of what are informally called the Varfanite monarchs because of those three offspring going on to rule. It's a tangled time that begins with her father Prescon and has also been called the time of the youthful monarchs or the Greenlings because we have a number of kings and queens, one after the other, who come to the throne when young. Can we really call Varfina a youthful monarch when she reaches the age of 43. Vafina gets in because of how old she was when she assumed the crown. It's a bit of a fudge, really, to fit her in with what's to come next. Vafina manoeuvred herself onto the throne after the death of her brother, King Prescon I, who died with no heir. She did this by bringing an army to Anaquist before anyone knew what was going on, even her siblings, Sendia and Rance, and they were both in Arenthia, at the time, on trade negotiations. This forthright move was typical of Varfina, who was fond of a bold strike when circumstances warranted. Rain Highlights The Aniquist scale market continues to be disrupted because of the great heavenfall of 234, which we covered in the last episode. Vafina's big interest is finance, the economy and mercantile pursuits, so she's all over this. Once queen, she moves to establish the Aniquis Traders Market that eventually, centuries later, becomes the Aniquis Bourse, or Stock Exchange. This, of course, was before the modern concept of shares, securities and joint stock ventures and that sort of stuff. But it was during Vafina's reign that the simple notion of scales as a trading asset began to be formalised. Scales start to be used as a medium to settle debts and contracts or they're used to be exchanged for other goods and commodities or for payment of labour or for high-value payments, scales are actually replacing gold. This was ad hoc and often led to disputes, some of which were taken to the highest authority, uh, the monarch, to settle. Settling these cases and with her background in commercial wheeling and dealing, set Varfina thinking about the possibilities and how the Crown could benefit. Having some sort of consistency in the value of scales, thanks to the oversight of the Crown, this appealed to many traders and merchants, and the tax levied wasn't onerous, and so the role of the Anaquist monarchy in the financial world of the scale trade truly began. As well as the overhaul of scale trading, in this period, the Anaquistian merchant fleet really gets going as the wool industry kicks into gear, an industry helped by the investment brought about by the growth in scale-driven commerce. 
Many areas surrounding Anaquist and Lowtown are cleared and devoted to sheep raising. Quite a few of the most prosperous are actually on large estates owned by the major noble families in Anaquist, and even some belonging to actual members of the actual royal family. As a result of this wooliness, uh, Nero, at the mouth of the Gefo River, grows as a merchant port in addition to its important naval base. A great deal of work is undertaken in building docks, wharfs and warehouses, but as the Gefo River had no flood control or management until damming was put in place in the 8th century, much of these riverside constructions were periodically swept away. Beacon, the river port closest to the city of Anaquist itself, naturally also booms, and during Varfina's reign, the bridge across the Gefo here is torn down and reconstructed, made wider and more solid, all the better for wagons and general traffic. I mean, this essentially is the first stone bridge across that mighty river. King Prescon, Varfina's father, was seen as a bit of a spoilsport loser with his lack of interest killing the annual games. Now, Varfina didn't resurrect them, but she did show some interest in the boat races, another annual tradition that was on its last legs, and with her mild patronage, the boat races had somewhat of a surge of interest. Now, what else? And some more rain highlights. Well, she was a patron of sculpture, and she established the Gallery of Monarchs in a new wing of the Royal Palace. And this is a wing that wasn't completed, actually, until the reign of her son, Blemen. Here, she commissioned busts of all of her ancestors going right back to Eucantha Anaquist herself. So she had six realistic sculptures, including herself, of course. In true trend-setting fashion, this kicks off a fad or busts of ancestors in the rest of Anaquist and even in Lowtown, with all the noble and aspirational family suddenly deciding that what would set the dining room off nicely would be a bust of grandma looking over their shoulders while they ate. Soon, anyone who could wield a chisel and carve marble into something resembling the head and shoulders of a human being, they were much in demand. Anaquistians being Anaquistians, the competitive urge soon ran rampant, which meant good times for sculptors and marble quarries as their services were keenly sought after and the pay was good. Some of the population loss that occurred in the exodus after the great heavenfall of 234 was offset with floods, hordes of sculptors coming to Anaquist from far off lands. But in just about any world anywhere, there are far fewer sculptors then there are people who want to get rich quick, claiming to be sculptors. So the howls of dissatisfied customers were heard long and loud regularly in this period. Two of the royal busts from this time still exist, Queen Kendall I and Queen Sendia I, but all the others, sadly, are lost. The temple in this period, continued to consolidate its power, and by now it had spread throughout the continent, Its main activities weren't only proselytising, religious services of various kinds, pastoral care and extracting money from the populace, but wherever it established itself, it made sure that it was part of overseeing every step of magical practice, and it did this by using Anaquist as a precedent. Usually this was enough to convince local authorities that the temple 
was a vital part of scale grading and authentication, since what was good enough for Anarchist was good enough for everyone, especially in this particular area of endeavour, where Anarchist was world's best practice, to use a completely anachronistic phrase. The process was simple. Missionary temple ecclesiasts would travel to places with no temple presence. They'd embed themselves in the community by way of preaching and good works, funded by larger, more established temples elsewhere. Once a large enough following had been gathered, building would commence to enhance the links already made with local leaders, and so on. Athena was tolerant of the temple, if not terribly observant herself. She did have a major falling out, however, when the temple proposed having an automatic seat on the advisory council for the prime ecclesiast. Dromka, in The Monarchs of Anarchist, records, or rather recreates, the moment when Varfina received the letter from the temple with this suggestion. And he does this in unusually vivid terms, describing Varfina's rage, the tearing up of the letter, and the commands to the half-dozen guards attending her in the throne room to emphasise her displeasure to the temple messenger by urinating on the torn-up letter that was on the floor of the throne room. This they proceeded to do, and the suggestion was considered rejected. The prime ecclesiast did, however, keep her head, so she probably got off lightly. The juiciest aspect of Varfina's reign is the start of something that will plague the Anarchists for some time, with the next half-dozen monarchs suffering from these troubles. And that's what we call the Rise of the Pretenders. What we're talking about here is the matter of pretenders. Claimants who, for one reason or another, decide to stand up and declare that they are the true monarch again, for one reason or another, and that whoever is on the throne at the moment has claimed it wrongfully. And as you can imagine, that usually causes a bit of consternation and bother, especially if the pretender manages to get some backing, either within Anarchist or from foreign realms, who are often quite happy to cause a bit of disruption in Anarchist. It's a recipe for trouble and strife, the last thing a monarch wants. We have to understand that in the entire history of Anarchistian pretenders, there's never been a case where the monarch of the day hears about the pretender's claim and says, oh, right, sorry, here's a crown, there's the throne, many apologies for my mistake. No, no, no. A pretender needs to be put down in the most forceful way possible as they're always seen as the bringers of discord and rebellion. And in the end, the effort that was needed to put down a pretender was effort taken away from more productive areas like the economy and the people. So pretenders are trouble indeed. As a case study, let's have a look at the first pretender we know about, the so-called Redbury Claimant. The Redbury Claimant pops up because of the simple fact that King Prescon, Fafina's brother, died without, as they say, issue. He had no daughters or sons to pass the crown to. It meant for the first time a break in the direct line of succession that had happened ever since the founding monarch Eucanter I. And as such, it was seen as an opportunity by those of an unscrupulous and opportunistic bent. In 272, 
two, a young woman called Callisto Redbury arrived in the city of Anaquist and declared that she was the actual daughter of King Prescott. Queen Julia, his wife, apparently gave birth to her after she left the capital and after the death of King Prescott and raised her in secret. Thus she was the true heir to the throne and here she was, back again, seeking her heritage. She was 17 at the time and extremely beautiful, with long black hair that hung halfway down her back. And even though many accepted that she was a pretender, she was special. So special. Callista Redbury was championed by two influential noble families, the Mackells and the Pinturbermans, who, and you won't be surprised to hear this, had a long list of long-standing grievances with the royal family ranging from lack of preferment in royal positions to not being part of advisory councils often enough to being unhappy about the settlement in a number of disputes involving money and property and even something as trivial as someone saying nasty things about them behind their backs. While Queen Vafina was generally respected, she was seen as doer and notoriously grumpy. Callista Redbury was fresh, attractive and made many speeches announcing her plans for major spending on Lowtown projects, such as wagon parking areas near the perpetually crowded markets and also facilities for community games and sports. She soon had a large following among the people and so Barfina acted, ordering her immediate arrest. With the help of the Mackels and the Penturbamans, Callista Redbury heard of these orders and fled the capital to seek refuge and support in Arenthia. Since relations between the Arenthian oligarchy and Anquist had been strained for some time, and thanks to some judicious preparatory agitating by the Mackles and the Penturbamans, she found a ready ear there. In late 272, she led an army of mercenaries funded by the Mackles and the Penturbamans back to Anquist with the stated aim of deposing Varfina and installing herself. This failed utterly, mostly due to a pair of canny Anaquistian generals, the wife and husband pair of Letitia and Onosimos Kadda, who used a combination of highly trained and highly paid troops, sound tactics, clever manoeuvring of battle sites and some useful weather to rout the pretender's forces at the Battle of Prospect Ridge, east of the capital, not far from Beacon. Callisto Redbury fled, along with the leading members of the Mackel and Penturbaman families. Together they spent the next few years travelling the continent and trying to gather support for another tilt at the Anaquistian throne, but this never eventuated. In the aftermath of the battle, the Arenthian oligarchy was deposed, and a new Arenthian oligarchy was installed that immediately denounced the previous leaders and declared that Arenthia was looking forward to a long and prosperous relationship with Anaquist. Hooray! Reports of Callisto Redbury's activity surfaced for the next ten years or so, and rumours for longer than that. Her ultimate fate is unknown. Much debate continues to this day over whether she was a naive pawn manipulated by the Macklin Penturbaman families for their own ends, or was she a cunning opportunist who saw a chance to better her station? 
No one seriously suggests that she was genuinely the daughter of Prescott, but an entertaining historical novel was published a few years ago, Fortune's Favourite, by Anne-Marie Tuggerfin, a rattling good yarn that portrays Callisto Redbury as a confidence trickster who charmed, duped and hoodwinked many, including aristocrats and military leaders, into supporting her audacious bid to win the crown of anarchists, while siphoning off a fortune. When her dash for the throne failed, she vanished and set up a warlord state of her own in a fertile wilderness valley far, far inland. Fortune's Favourite is a fun book that shows some sound understanding of the historical period and would make a sensational series on a quality streaming service. Callisto Redbury wasn't the last pretender. Thanks to Prescott's early death and childlessness, pretenders continued to pop up for some time like a game of royal whack-a-mole. In Varfina's time, a pair of twins gained some notoriety by appearing and claiming that they were Prescott's heirs. Foolishly, they did so without much support and right in front of the royal palace. The dual execution was reported to be the first synchronised beheading in anarchist history. Personal life. Athena's early upbringing with a father who was notably secretive and, let's say, obsessive, and later having to survive a brother who duped her, probably helped form Vafina's extremely suspicious nature. She was quick to take offence, and since she was an absolute monarch, many suffered her wrath for crossing her, or even merely upsetting her. The last thing anyone in the royal court wanted to hear was Vafina snapping, what are you looking at? Varfina spent most of her life as queen in the palace of the Anaquistian stronghold, the centre of the city. But soon after she ascended to the throne, she claimed an extensive tract of land to the west on the Orophan River, a good day's travel from the capital. And she had a large walled villa built there. This estate soon had productive revenue, earning farmlands, but much of it was left as woods, all the better for hunting. Varfina enjoyed hunting, one of the pursuits most favoured by the Anaquistian upper crust, and her favoured prey was a dangerous wild boar. Those who were asked to be part of her hunting party saw it as a sign of great favour, despite the perils not just from the fearsome beast, but because death while hunting was a notable cause of mortality among the nobility, and sometimes it was even an accident. Barfina had five husbands, three of whom lost their heads because of alleged adultery, even though there's no actual evidence of this. Dromka, the 17th century historian in his The Monarchs of Anarchist, ventures that she grew bored with two of them, and the third was an unfortunate who thought she actually enjoyed arguing and found out that he was very fatally wrong on that score. Barfina's interest in the arts was solely devoted to sculpture. She had little time for portraits, and none have survived, so her physical likeness is unknown, apart from what could be an illusion in Zofro's Pastoral Reflections, the truly obtuse epic poem written around about this time, where an awkward couplet mentions stately princess with hair aflame, marching from afar the throne to claim. Redheads are rare in the Anaquistian dynasty, but it's not out of the question that this reference 
would be Vafina herself. Vafina had four children, three who went on to rule uh, from six known pregnancies. The children are Ishkar, Lemon, Ascot and Tristan. She raised all of them to be monarchs with no favourite. They were schooled in government, law, diplomacy and, of course, finance, but she also made sure that they had music and art lessons, even though she didn't value these pursuits herself. All of them had extensive training in all sorts of weaponry and military matters, such as strategy, tactics and so on. History was a huge part of their education as well, Athena firmly believing that going into the future without an understanding of the past, was walking blindfolded into dangerous territory. Vafina forbade outright violence between her children, a constraint that many Anaquistian monarchs have tried to impose with greater and lesser success. But she was quite happy for each of her children to strive to outdo the others in any or all fields of endeavour. As a result, the childhood of Vafina's offspring was one of constant jostling for favouritism and preeminence. Two years before Vafina's death in 256, while she was still vigorous and undeniably in charge, she settled the succession through chance, the drawing of lots. Four impressive cerulean scales, varying from choice to middling to inferior to meagre in quality, were placed in a large vase which was also plated with annealed scales for effect. Each of Athena's children had to reach in and draw out a scale. Blemen, who drew third, came out with the choice scale and was thus designated by Varfina as her successor. And of course, this inevitably gave rise to protests from Ishkar, Ascot and Tristan. Tristan claimed that she was the most talented in leadership military strategy and foreign relations, so she deserved to be the successor. Ascot disagreed, pointing out that she was clearly the hardest working. Ishgar said that he should be the next monarch because he was obviously the best looking. And anyway, couldn't it be a best of three? Tristan, Ascot and Ishgar's efforts to displace Blemen were unsuccessful. Athena died at the age of 43, while still hale and on top of her game, while on a boar hunt that went tragically badly. She didn't die at the hands of any of her hunting companions, though, the result of a poorly aimed lance thrust or a wayward arrow. She was thrown from her horse by a giant boar who disemboweled her before fleeing. The beast was never tracked down. Queen Varfina I, the first of the Varfanites, mother of three monarchs and relative of quite a few. After taking the crown at the age of only 20, she held it for 23 years, which is a very respectable reign, all things considered. She didn't suffer fools gladly, and she suffered villains even less. Headsmen were well employed during her reign, and she was never a favourite of the people, but she did consolidate Anaquist after a feckless, shiftless and generally spineless King Prescott and she died wrestling a giant boar, which is probably the death she wanted. That's all for episode 12 of the World Below, the War in the Heavens podcast. Next episode, Blemon the Lucky. 
This has been The World Below the War in the Heavens, a podcast exploring the history, culture and esoterica of the world below, a continent of magic and mystery with inhabitants who keep one eye on the sky at all times. I've been your host, Michael Pryor. If you'd like to find out more about me and my books, pop over to www.michaelpryor.com.au. Farewell. Farewell.